This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. If I ask you to be with me by and by, will you meet me tonight, love? If it's too dark to see with the naked eye, will you bring me to light? If I happen to stagger and fall behind, will you help me to fight, love? Will you help me to walk? Will you ease my mind? Will you bring me to light? Will you bring me to light? Welcome back, Theatre Nerds. Actually, though, if you're joining us for the first time, my name is Mel Martin. This is Backstage, and it's co-hosted by my very good friend, Mike Williams. And we nerd, out, we nerd out weekly or on all kinds of theatre happening all around the world. Yeah, and if you missed us last week or any of the weeks before that, you can always catch up on any of your favourite podcast streaming applications like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio has it, accessmedia.nz. 
So Mel, tell us about our musical of the week, because I think I can say pretty confidently, I don't believe I have ever heard of it. Never. Yay. I love bringing a new one to your attention. <laughs> so yeah, musical of the week is Violet. The Broadway cast album was released in 2014, featuring Sutton Foster, who plays the titular role of Violet. Uh, you know the deal. I will tell you everything I found out about it in a little bit. Um, it was super fun to read up on this one because it's also new to me too. Um, oh. I've sort of known about it for oh, a long time, um, and I had friend, I've had a friend that was interested in it, but I am only just today discovering the goods. Well, Sutton Foster, of course, you know one of those grand names of Broadway over recent years. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got for me. Last week we got well stuck into the business of writing musical theatre, how some of the greats go about it, and and uh, what things they've done to get themselves into the business. And so we think it's only fitting, and probably to offer good balance, that we might give a similar bit of treatment this week to the writing of a play for the stage. Except, of course, this week we're taking an online how-to guide and it a little bit further. Shall I tell you about Violet first, though? Because it's got you're just time. itching to, aren't you? I can see that. <laughs> I am. I All am. right. So if I can stop you in any case, so uh, yep, you go for it. Let's let's do that now. Get that out of the way, and <laughs> um, then I'll be educated as well. You will. Okay, I'm ready. Violet is a musical with me- a music by Janine Tesori and libretto by Brian and it's based on the 1969 short story The Ugliest Pilgrim by Doris Betts. Uh, the short story centres around Violet Carl, who is a disfigured woman in her late 20s who travels by bus from her home in Spruce Pine, North Carolina to Tulsa, Oklahoma in the hopes of being healed by a televangelist, which always goes really well. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't always like to give the full synopsis because they can be a bit long-winded, but this one's relatively short in the grand scheme of synopses. So with a ticket, a suitcase, and a heart full of expectation, Violet Carl waits for a Greyhound bus in Spruce Pine, North Carolina. It is September 4th, 1964. For a moment, she sees herself as a young girl, carefree, and before her face was horribly disfigured in an accident. A local's nosy question breaks Violet's reverie, prompting her to look forward to the healing she expects to receive from the televangelist in Tulsa that will help her transcend her provincial little town. As the bus departs the station, the passengers muse as to where this journey might lead them. And then uh, more or less the entirety of the show is set on or around or near this Greyhound bus. Oh, really? That sounds quite limiting, really, doesn't it? Um, I mean, I think there are little, you know, they go to a dance hall. I mean, I'll tell you shortly, but they go into a dance hall and they go to a hotel and they go to various other little locations. But the, the bus really is the centre point of it literally drives the story forward. <laughs> cool. At a rest stop in Kingsport, Tennessee, Violet meets two poker playing soldiers, Flick and Monty. Flick is a black or African-American sergeant in his early 30s. Monty is younger and he's, he's white and he's a corporal paratrooper. They're both bound for Fort Smith, Arkansas. Uh, Violet asks to join their game, and as they deal her in, she privately recalls how her father taught her to play. Uh, And I think there's allusions to gambling and um, mistreatment in that department. Later, in the Nashville station, Flick wants to know exactly what it is that Violet wants to change. With the help of the movie magazines, she shows the soldiers the physical features she likes the best, but they offend her when they stop paying attention to her and start paying attention to the hot ladies in the magazine and other women on the bus. Uh-huh. 
So she, she makes way from them. She sits apart from them as the journey continues, once again recalling her younger self uh, singing in the moment just before the accident. And this is all happening in one, across one act. So you're looking at about an hour 20 max. Um, so this all happens without an intermission. Okay. In, in Memphis, uh, the place, Violet, Flick and Monty head out to a Beale Street music hall where Flick and Violet dancing together attracts some unfriendly attention uh, because Violet is white and Flick is African-American. When Monty moves in and makes a pass at Violet, Flick is bothered and he leaves. Uh, Violet follows him back to the boarding house where the landlady interrupts a tender moment between them. In the middle of the night, that same night, Monty stumbles in through Violet's unlocked door. They also share tender moments and sleep together. That just, that just happens. Of course um, it does. <laughs> back on the bus the next day, Violet travels with both of the, well, the men and a few others uh, to Fort Smith on her way to Tulsa. Flick and Violet pledge to write each other, but he gets upset, obviously, about the events of the night before. When it comes time for the three to part ways, Monty instead asks Violet to meet him on her return stop at Fort Smith. She coyly promises nothing, and the bus pulls away. Big dramatic moment. In Tulsa, Violet finds the televangelist she was looking for. He has no interest whatsoever in helping her. I would say that's largely because he can't. And in the televangelist's empty chapel, Violet has all these... She's been collecting Bible quotes on little bits of paper and she scatters them all over the altar. Uh, and, and the televangelist preacher guy comes in and finds her and she begs him to help her perform this miracle. Please, please fix my face. The miracle being to fix up all the scars and, and bring it back to her, her youthful beauty. Right. So, of course, that's not going to happen. Naturally. Um, in somewhat of a dream sequence, the preacher morphs into her father, I don't know how they stage this, and an argument ensues until eventually Violet's father apologises for his part in um, Violet's accident and her life since and the gambling problems and um, just apologises for everything. Coming back, which brings Violet back to reality where she's aware that something about her has changed and she just sort of assumes it's her face. She hasn't seen herself, so she's just, oh, I'm changed, it's my face. Um, she reboards the bus and she's convinced that she has um, experienced a miracle. Right. This is basically where we're hit with the moral of the story. When Violet stops at the Fort Smith station, Monty is there waiting on, on her way back. He's sympathetic, pitying, making it pretty obvious to Violet that her face hasn't changed at all, um, and she, into which she now realises. She's crushed, obviously. She rejects Monty's invitation to marry him before he ships out to Vietnam. Flick, however, is also at the station, and he recognised that actually Violet has changed, though her scar has not. He persuades her to stay with him, and her healing is complete when she takes Flick's hand, committing to a new life with him. Okay. Yeah. Not so too it, deep, is it, really? No, no, it's not really. You know, it's, it's the old beauty, don't judge a book by its cover sort of. Yeah. Um, there's more going on underneath and all that. And you're yeah. a good person no matter what. That's right. And skin okay. colour doesn't matter, etc. So this is another show that actually doesn't have an extensive history, which is why you've probably not heard of it, Mike. Um, I wasn't mm. even able to find mention of any community theatre productions anywhere in the world. Violet was developed at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Centre's National Music Theatre Conference in 1994. It, um, after that, it premiered off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons in March of 97. 
and closed in April. And that off-Broadway production won the Drama Critics Circle Award and Lucille Vortel Award for Best Musical. Wow. And yeah, so it did quite well, that little off-Broadway production. Uh, in January of 2003, a reunion concert was held at Playwrights Horizons, which uh, members of the original cast performed. That uh, Sutton Foster was not in that original cast. Okay. Um, the Encores Off-Centre series held a one-night production at the New York City Centre in July of 2013. So this was some 10 years later, and that's where Sutton Foster gets involved in the project. She played Violet with Joshua Henry as Flip. Kiala Settle was also in that cast. Gee, that's 19 years after that um, first concept stuff happening in 1994. So yes. we talked about this last week. Sometimes it takes ages for a musical to get to a point where it's ready for an audience or, or you know, getting to its polished stage. And from what I do understand, from what I understand from reading up this afternoon, um, there was a bit of development that did happen in that time. You know, songs lost, songs added, bits and pieces changed. Um, so I assume it was, and somebody obviously has a genuine love for this piece um, and has kept pushing it through. It did have quite a long life in the end, if you think about mm. it, in the, in the grand fun. scheme of things, yeah. Um, anywho, after that Encores Off Centre series, One Night Production, Violet then opened on Broadway at the American Airlines Theatre in a roundabout theatre company production. That was in March of 2014, once again starring Sutton Foster, and the uh, original Broadway cast, which we're hearing on the album today. Okay. Violet opened off West End at the Charing Cross Theatre with a run from January to April of 2019. So that was another few years later. That production then transferred to Tokyo and Osaka as the first of the Charing Cross Theatre's collaboration with the Japanese Umeda Arts Theatre. Cool. Actually, that storyline would work really well um, with the Japanese translation uh, very much in line with the Japanese ethic and, um, you know, finding the beauty within and that sort of thing. I feel like it would. I, um, yeah. I, think, I believe there was a Japanese language production. Right. That's kind of the entire history, actually, of Violet. Um, I don't even know if you can license it through NTI or Hal Leonard, uh, but it is worth the listen, if nothing else. Um, there is a 1981 adaptation of the story, The Ugliest Pilgrim. That short film was also titled, titled Violet and it won the Oscar for Best Live Action Short Film in 1982. Wow. Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. And just to finish off with a little bit of critical reception, because it's helpful to know what the critics thought if you're umming and ahhing over whether to check it out. In his review in the New York Times, Ben Brantley wrote that the off-Broadway production raised the topicality quotient and reconfigured its source's love story to put direct emphasis on parallels between Violet and Flip, who, as a black man in the southern United States, knows what it's like to be judged by your skin. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. No, Obvious, really. I, until I read that, um, which kind of is a nice point to make, isn't it? Mm, I think so. Yeah. Violet, uh, he also went on to say, Violet integrates a number of styles from gospel to and bluegrass to Memphis blues, Ms. Tesori has a fine hand for harmonies and counterpoint. What the show fails to do is provide any compelling sense of character. Okay. So a little bit of a sting at the end there. But 10 years later, the Broadway version opens to unanimously excellent reviews. Charles Isherwood, okay. who we quote often, uh, described it as an enduringly rewarding musical with its tangy flavours of country, gospel, blues and honky-tonk rock it is also her warmest, most accessible score. The time has come for Sutton Foster to take her place among the first ranked 
of Broadway's musical theatre performance. Wow. And I think that's uh, why a, a part, this show is a part of why we know who Sutton Foster is now. Right. And I wonder whether that first comment about it, uh, lacking a compelling sense of character, needed somebody with the chops that Sutton Foster's got to bring to that role, to make it uh, three-dimensional, to bring to give it something that is not apparent on the page, maybe. Yeah, ob- and obviously the, the Broadway production did quite well. So obviously it just needed Sutton Foster, or it needed that 10 years of development. Yeah, probably that too, to be <laughs> fair. COVID's obviously got in the way. I wonder if it's coming back onto the Broadway stage uh, with the re- resurgence of activity there now. Not sure. I, I I mean, I know there's a lot that they're trying to get re- rebooted, but, I mean, if there, I suppose there will be companies looking for smaller cast shows, and this would definitely be high on the list, I would have thought. So would you pick this as being something that maybe societies could look at uh, trying to uh, maybe find a um, community theatre licence maybe in about three or four years' time? It's been around a while now. Well, I'm not sure. I wonder. I actually didn't have a look on NTI's books to see, but it's never come, I've never come across it in any of my searches for show licensing. A compelling enough story. You know, you know if it's a small cast um, production that actually runs, what did you say, about an hour 40? Yeah. That's a good good length for, for something without an interval and um, well within the means of some of the small to medium societies we've got around the country. I couldn't agree more. I Someone tell me if the rights are available and um, I'd love to see a stage production of it because I, I really do love that concept of the bus and getting on and off the bus. Not that we go looking for bootleg copies or anything like that, but did you find anything on YouTube that gave any hint of how it was staged? There's a little bit. I've seen a couple of clips of the opening number where the characters are musing on, you know, um, how the journey's going to go. And it, I, if, from what I remember, it's very bare bones, you know, it's chairs and moving, um, moving props and things. Um, ah, so you don't need a full Greyhound bus? No, I don't think you do. No. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could if you wanted to. Yeah, why not? And I suppose that's all you have to say about that. That is absolutely all I have to say about that. Good on you, mate. I'd like a pair of Jean Tierney eyes. Try Monty's mouth on for size. <laughs> a little fuller, though. Hey. A mouth so soft there's no end of romance. What's a mouth got to do with romance? You got to ask, you'll never know. <laughs> I've been with more than you my friend none of yours won't seconds though mine all come back for more yeah to me boys 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 when i'm in line for my miracle and the preacher is all set to go i know just what i'll ask for but i'm not telling you at least to stop squabbling and pretend you're actually listening Pretty please, Violet with sugar on top. If I had gypsy hair and a face to match it, no traces anywhere of a wayward hatchet, I could be Citrice shooting on location in some far off and tiny nation. Oh, with lips like those, I'd look almost shameless. That's how it goes I'd love her all, I'd love her all I'd love her all, 
star of a picture show. Oh, oh, you should ask that preacher for some Ursula Andress legs. Nothing, my legs are fine. No, 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 but rising out of the ocean in that white Dr. No bikini. What's the matter with my legs? Well, nothing, they're long. Then why did you bring them up at all? What you need is some Ursula Andress there. I can't believe you just said that. Not that it matters to me, but you said a leading lady is what you want to be. How is it going to go? Light up a picture show. Give me just a minute, though, to pillage my portfolio. Carl Elkie Summer's hair with Judy Garland's preaching. But Grace Kelly's little nose with Rita Hayworth's skin. But Ava Gardner for the eyebrows. Bergman cheekbones under gypsy. Somewhere and Bob Gibson, the man has an arm of steel. 30 to go, like I said. All to pieces from Musical of the Week, Violet. You're backstage with Mel and Mike on 890 Free FM. Sutton Foster once again knocking it out of the park. Uh, I will be, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to be obsessing over this show for a little while. Our musical of the week, Violet. Well, as speaking of obsessing over shows, you know, I, I don't obsess over shows other than you know, the one that I'm doing at the moment, that becomes my total focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think everybody goes through that. Yeah. But that must go tenfold when you're actually writing the thing yourself and the characters have all come from your own brain onto a page and then being shown on stage and somebody else's conceit of what you've done. Mm-hmm. So as promised today, we are nitpicking our way a little bit through how to write a play from writerscookbook.com. And this comes from a place of some authority as far as Mel's concerned anyway, being a playwright yourself, Mel. This is territory I don't dare get into because I know that I couldn't write a decent shopping list, let alone a play. But take everything we and the internet says with, with a tiny grain of salt, but with that knowledge that Mel knows what she's talking about when it comes to this sort of thing. <laughs> don't tell people that. So you, you've searched out the good stuff. I know you have. Well, actually, I think you're going to be surprised, Mike. We say nitpicking because we're going to do exactly that. To start with, the online guide opens with a precursory paragraph, and I quote, Writing a play comes with its challenges. You're limited to setting and staging some things, such as magic tricks, can be difficult. But they're not impossible. A lot can be done with modern technology and a good imagination. So keep an open mind when writing, but remember to be practical. Much of the staging will be up to the director and set designer, But if there are certain things that are required, such as a door that opens and closes or a table, make sure it's included in the descriptions. 
That's the opening paragraph. My immediate thoughts are that uh, sometimes uh, you can read a script that has pretty detailed descriptions about action that happens and wild imaginings that actually can be minimized to almost nothing. And my immediate past experience with that came when I first looked at the script for the production of Blues Brothers First Contact, which I was involved in in Tauranga a couple of years ago now. There were things described in that script which I thought, how the hell are we going to make this happen? There was a car chase on stage involving four vehicles. There was supposed to be a bus pulling up. There was a uh, an outhouse exploding. There was all kinds of stuff happening on stage. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how literal are we going to be? Knowing how small the stage was for Tauranga Musical Theatre at 17th Avenue, I thought, I'm going to be really keen to see how the director pulls this off. And it was a combination of cartoony kind of approach to the action which in the end was uh, befitting the Blues Brothers kind of style, that it was over the top, it was stylized rather than literal. Um, so there are ways and means of getting around even some of the most outlandish ideas, even if the, the writer has said, um, you know, suddenly an elephant appears in the lounge. <laughs> yeah. how, you know, how are you going to deal with that? What, what kind of suggestions can you make to suggest that an elephant has indeed appeared in the lounge without going to the trouble of trying to hire one um, or put somebody in a grey suit? So... Th- I think you do have to, I would guess as a writer, you do have to say, okay, well, I've got to be sensible about this. How can I make this work? And how much of this is essential to the ideas that I'm conveying? But you don't necessarily need to think that, uh, you know, you're you're limited in your imagination. I, yeah, I'm inclined to agree, I think. Um, well, no, I definitely am inclined to agree. Uh, there, I mean, there is, when you write, I've written a couple of plays. I'm no, I'm no, Roger Hall, but I've written a couple. Very famous New Zealand playwrights have told me to write whatever the hell I want and staging it isn't my problem. Um, <laughs> and as, I, as I've grown up and as I've grown as a writer, I've learned that there is an important distinction between writer and director. And some people are both, but not many are actually are. So where your your imagination as a writer m- might be limited in how you would stage something, like you've sort of already said, a director's usually won't be. You know, mm. a director will be able to think of ways to stage something that you couldn't know because you're not a director, you're a writer. <laughs> um, I, I get what you're saying, uh, and I agree. Sometimes it needs uh, that totally um, fresh approach, somebody else's brain coming in and saying, yeah, I can see how I can make that work. But there are also some practical things. Uh, I read a script recently for a play which I really liked, and part of the action involved uh, a tray of glasses smashing on stage. Unless you've got the wherewithal to get some pretty expensive prop glasses that are capable of doing this, it's a really difficult thing to achieve and to make it look convincing without putting people on stage in danger and making a massive clean-up job for somebody, you know, within 10 seconds while the lights change. So there are practical stage effects which sometimes is really difficult to achieve if you're not aware of that as a writer i think sometimes you can be asking a little bit too much yeah i think you're right and that's where the balance comes in Mm. it is a a bit of a fine line to walk if i'm being honest maybe as a writer you should say if possible this should happen i sort of feel like a script is that anyway you know I, i never expect a director is going to do exactly what i say in a script because I said it, they're going to do whatever they think is right for their production. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but go back to the first play that you directed, Mel. How much did you feel like you needed to do everything that was in the script? Very much. 
Every, it's overwhelming a bit, isn't it? When you when you're doing your first one, you oh, think, yeah. "Oh my gosh, the the playwright has said this should happen. I've got to make it happen." And then by the time you do your next two or three, um, you start thinking, "Oh no, that's not necessary. I can do this." <laughs> the point of me directing this is that I, that I direct it, um, but in those early days of, and I still feel like this from time to time when I direct, um, I still feel a loyalty to the playwright as a playwright. Of course. So yeah. I, I feel a sense of um, yeah, like loyalty. I don't want to butcher your work because you intended for it to be this way. No. Again, it's a balance. You try to give it your best creative effort. That's right. So what you're feeling on, what you read in that online guide then, was that, was that a fair way to start that off with that um, with that first paragraph? Yeah. Um, I think it's not a bad setup, but I'm interested to know more, hear more. Let's get into okay. some more of it. Step one of how to write a play is create an interesting plot. If you don't have a plot, you don't have a play. The plot leads your story, taking you, your audience, and your characters from the beginning through to the end. It doesn't have to be linear, but audiences should be able to follow it. Not wrong, I suppose, but perhaps uh, that's maybe stating the obvious, do you think, Mel? I so think, and that I sort of feel like that about that, that opening paragraph. If I'm Googling how to write a play, I want you to walk me through how to write a play, not just be a bit airy-fairy about it. But we, we can carry on. We can carry on. You know, why would you want to tell a story unless you've got a beginning, a middle, and an end already in mind, regardless of how that narrative might happen? Usually you, you want to write because you have a story in mind. You've got a thing that you want to say, right? Yes. I don't know why you've started. When you don't always necessarily have to have all of, you know, the entire plot laid out, you know, you might... I'm sort of one of those writers who I'll just write and see where it goes. And sometimes yeah. it goes somewhere weird, so I've got to pull it back. But it's, sometimes it's nice to just see where the play goes. You don't have to have it all mapped out right from get-go. But we're only okay. on step one, so this is step two. See, this is why I don't write plays, because I, I don't have that mindset. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Step two starts off with this. It says, if you're writing a longer play, consider a subplot. Oh. Again, <laughs> that's kind of, kind of basic stuff. The guide's uh, writer muses that her favourite subplot is in Twelfth Night, when Mariah and company trick Malvolio uh, into wearing cross-gartered hose and all that sort of stuff. It's an equally confusing plot line, but offers different humour to the main plot. Mariah and company intentionally deceive Malvolio as they feel that he deserves his comeuppance. And Malvolio certainly presents as that kind of a character he needs to be you know, taught a lesson somewhere along the line. Yeah. Viola, meanwhile, thinks that life would be easier as a man and does not intentionally set out to cause any harm. Her motivation's a bit different. The two plots supposedly work together to entertain, horrify, amuse the audience all in one. And again, um, you know, like I said, pretty basic to have a subplot. Not wrong. Good <laughs> advice. Yeah. But what I want to know, if I've go like I said, if I've Googled how to write a play, how do you decide on appropriate subplot? How do you pick between the seven rolling around in your brain? If I'm brand new, I'm going to need a little bit more detail like that. All right? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so step three. I don't think we're getting any better here. Decide on your structure. Okay. All right, it goes on to detail that stage plays are divided into acts and each act is divided into scenes, which isn't necessarily... Just a minute, I'm making notes here. <laughs> which isn't necessarily true anymore. And it continues with, you have limited physical space with a stage play. So keep this in mind when structuring your play. In a play, 
the more locations you have, the more difficult you make it to translate onto stage. No matter how great your story, if a company or director can't envisage how to stage what you've written, they'll be less likely to want to bring it to life. Go for locations that are easy to set up and for people to visualize when reading your script. When do you think all this was written? 1950-something? <laughs> yeah, I did look because it was, yeah, it was like last year or the year before. Well, it might have been 2020. Oh, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of old-fashioned to me, but I guess behind all that, there is um, there is some practical thought gone into it because a lot of places are limited. They have a proscenium arch theatre. That's their space. They've got fixed seating. They can't do much else. But with black box performance spaces uh, being more the norm these days, I would argue that that's less of a concern. But anyway, actually, um, when you're writing a play, you're only really concerned about the space that you're limited to in terms of the words on the page. You know what I mean? That, uh, yeah. Again, I hark back to the Blues Brothers thing. We were all over the place. We were up in Canada. We were all over America. We were in all kinds of weird situations. We only had to suggest that through the things that we said as performers and um, as the story evolved in front of the audience, for the audience to go, okay, yeah, sure. That's right. We'll accept you that. Them, you tell them you're somewhere and they go, as long as they're on the ride, they go for it. It's a bit same with um, Heather's, actually, when we did Heather's last year. It is based on a movie which jumps locations, you know, like 37 times or something. So there And there are pr practical on-stage ways to flick quickly between a location you just got to be imaginative about it and have a really good team around you of people who can pull it off just you mentioning that movie connection though brings up uh, something else i thought of before when you're talking about subplots actually with plays that are evolved from movies that often is a big problem because in a movie you'll get maybe two or three subplots which are going at once sometimes rather unsatisfactorily if one of those subplots ends up being the victim of you know some serious editing to make the time good but in a movie you can do all kinds of stuff and have three or four things happening at once and switching between locations but the practical aspect of trying to do that on stage and, and to keep the, the story clear uh, sometimes is, is a little bit difficult to deal with it is tricky and a bit of imagination goes a long way true Okay, so if you like that, you're going to love step four. Tell me about step four. <laughs> Decide how you want the play to look, which you'll know I, I find immediately problematic. You're the writer. You don't actually get to say how the play looks. You know what I mean? <laughs> look how many classic plays, particularly Shakespeare, have been reimagined in so many different ways. My gosh, why should the writer be too concerned about that? That's right. Wow. Step four goes on to outline that the design of your set can dramatically alter how actors perform your play. I have yet to read a script where the set is so descriptive that you can't do anything but what's on the page. Right. It also says there are several types of theatre stage. Visualise your set and draw it out, which, to be fair, some playwrights have included, you know, as ideas, but not prescriptively so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there have been plays over the years that come with a, a writer's set design ideas or, or suggestions, but I've never seen more than that. I'm not into it. I hate it. No, not at all. In fact, um, the only time I think I've seen any attempt to give some idea of how a set could work has been uh, where a floor plan has been included of the original production done in West End or wherever it may be, oh, uh, just yeah. as a reference point to say. You know, sometimes a, a playwright might say, uh, you know, there's a door to the left or there's a door in the centre backstage or whatever. You don't necessarily have to have that if your theatre means that you've got to do things practically in a different way. That's right. 
So, yeah, I don't buy into that. Step five is to know your audience. Oh, yeah, no disagreement there. I'm not entirely sure it's a practical step uh, other than to keep the writer focused, maybe. But you need to know who you're writing for. You do need to know. I mean, okay, well, let's quote the thing, the, the guide. Your audience is important for a play because you need to be able to market it. Think about the age, gender, demographic, class, background, blah, blah, blah. When you're picturing who you're writing for, come up with your perfect audience member, tailor the script to them. The narrower your imaginary audience is, the easier it will be able it will be to write your script. And I agree that you need to know your audience in some way or who you're telling the story to or for, but I definitely don't tailor anything for anyone. That's the last thing I well, maybe I do it wrong. I was gonna say that's the last thing I do as a playwright, but maybe <laughs> I don't do it right. <laughs> Yeah, the more you elaborated on that step five, the the worse it got. I, I'm totally in, in tune with the idea that you should know who you're intending, you know, who your audience is, who you want to write this for. I want to write this for women. I want to write this for disenfranchised refugees. I want to write this for people who have ever been cheated on. I want to write this yeah. for whatever reason. Right. But imagining your target theatre go it, nah, that's yeah. awful. And it's the See, we're the dissing all the all the best online help that we could find. We're dissing it straight away. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't think there is a really good guide on how to write a play unless you go to university. <laughs> Maybe you should just do it. <laughs> Maybe the most helpful step so far is step number six, uh, which is to format the script properly and make sure you don't confuse the screenplay layout with the stage play one. Yeah, that is actually really helpful and important to know and something I was told quite early on in my playwriting career. If your script isn't well laid out, nobody reads it. They pick it up, they look at the first page and then they don't bother with the rest because it's a mess to get their eyes around. I was just starting to get hopeful that we were getting somewhere productive because that actually was a helpful step. But step seven has given me more questions than answers. Step seven. <laughs> okay. Step seven of how to write a play from writerscookbook.com says... Create interesting characters. Again, good. Like any other piece of writing, each of your characters should be unique and easy for the audience to identify. They also shouldn't be walking stereotypes. Many of your audience won't be able to see your characters, so it's particularly important that they stand out in the way that they speak because there will be less visual cues, especially for those high up and or with poor eyesight. The way your characters speak can tell an audience a variety of things, including their class and educational level. And it's therefore important to get this right. Seriously, Mel. Yeah. You're saying this is this is something written in the last 10 years? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 2020. Wow. Okay. What's and your reaction? Again, not wrong, but doesn't cover how to create the interesting characters. It does. It says make them interesting, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so witty dialogue, check. But what yep. else? Yeah, we're finally I don't know. at the end. Okay, we're finally at the end of the list. With step eight, oh, you're going to love this. Make your characters' gestures grand. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure this makes sense. What do you reckon? Oh, goodness me, she goes on. Facial expressions should be used sparingly when writing a play. 
what he said, raising his eyebrow, saying that your character <laughs> raises an eyebrow <laughs> is fine for a novel or screenplay, but this is a play. Even the audience in the front row will struggle to see a raised eyebrow. So <laughs> she's putting emphasis on the fact that you need to cater for big gestures with the acting, except the person doing the writing probably doesn't need to even necessarily even <laughs> worry about it. I guess what we've learned today is to be really picky when it comes to getting advice or information online. Uh, yeah. It's absolutely what the internet is there for. Just be vigilant. Don't just take advice off any old blog that claims to know it's shit. Because, <laughs> yeah, it may not know that it really is <laughs> or that it's well-intended maybe, but uh, slightly misguided in some areas. But don't go anywhere because we'll be right back with the good stuff. That is our list of what is coming up around the place soonish. I'm going to go and write a play. Raise your foot now, that's the way. You'll be moving on today. Raise the other, put it down. Now you're headed into town. Whoa, boy, you got left. Right, oh boy, ain't that right? Got some years ahead to go. You'll go free if you take it slow. Oh boy, you got left, right, oh boy, ain't that right? Two kinds of people in this world. Some say yes and some say no. Time to say which side you're on. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Say yes and your adventures start. Not always as expected. Say no, you stay apart, but you stay protected. You got to give yourself a reason to rejoice. For the music you make counts for everything. Now every living soul has got a voice. You got to give it room and let it sing. Family never had too much, made the best of every day. Ate what's on our plates, you know, never threw a thing away. We kept our nightmares on the shelf, our dreams were on the table. Pass them down and help yourself as long as you are able. My mama told me, son, forget what might have been. Give yourself a break, whatever's happening. Don't let your spirit, son, come close.
Sing from our musical of the week, which is Violet. You are backstage with Mel and Mike on 89.03 FM. Before we run out of time today, let us just tell you about an upcoming production from The List. Coming to the Rivoli Theatre stage in May, Blood Brothers is being staged by Hamilton Musical Theatre. It's being directed by Angela Walker. The story is a nature versus nurture plot. It revolves around fraternal twins, Mickey and Eddie, who are separated at birth one subsequently being raised in a wealthy family, the other in a poor family. The different environments take the twins to opposite ends of the social spectrum, one becoming a counsellor and the other unemployed and in prison. They both fall in love with the same girl, however, which causes a rift in their friendship and leads to big tragedy that I won't tell you any more about, so you'll go and see it. Um, I think that's a good summary. Yes, there's a great cast. Patrick Ward and Eckhard Becker will be bringing Mickey and Eddie to life. Mike's in it, a wonderful director and actor, Laurie Johnson is in it, the wonderful, oh, she's so wonderful, they're both so wonderful, Kat Harris and Heather Connolly are playing Mrs. Johnston and Mrs. Lyons. Um, it really is one not to be missed. There's a great cast. Hopefully we can sneak in, sneak it in on stage around the Omicron wave. We're working hard to try to make that happen. I'm so looking forward to getting into the show on stage and being part of the cast once again. I've done it once before, uh, 12 years ago, but Angela's take is is different. I know the community has been looking forward to it as well, because although it is a bit of a dark story, it's a sad story in many ways, it's full of humour. It is also, Blood Brothers is uh, consistently in the top five of uh, the world's best musicals on virtually anybody's list. It is so well regarded and such a favourite for so many people. And without any further ado now, we've got to get our calendars out for everything we know of that is coming up around the place soonish. Clarence Street Theatre, Shrek the Musical, directed by Nick Wilkinson, 26th to the 30th of April. Friends, the musical parody is on stage one night only, May the 6th. And Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, coming up, directed by David Sidwell for Hamilton Operatic. That's opening in July. At Navarra Lounge, there is an open mic night tonight and every Wednesday. Doors open at 6pm. And if you want to perform, bookings are essential. On Saturday, March the 12th, silent movies and groovy sounds in the background. And on Sunday, March the 13th, is the Speakeasy Jazz Club. Gaslight Theatre in Cambridge, Conjugal Rights by Roger Hall, opens April 30th to May the 14th. And Mata Mata Dramatic Society have any port in a pandemic by Richard Previtt. That's going on stage April 23rd to the 30th. Potato Theatre Players are rehearsing Moonshine, uh, the musical that opens in April. Thames Music and Drama are rehearsing Mamma Mia. That's directed by Diane Connors and hits the stage in May. And Rotorua Musical Theatre has song contest The Almost Eurovision Experience, directed by John Drummond, March 25th to April 9th. Over the way in Tauranga, the Detour Theatre have the Hardcase Hotel by Devin Williamson on stage March 24th until April the 9th. Also in Tauranga, Tauranga Musical Theatre, That Bloody Woman is directed by Daryl Nechka and hits the stage April 27th until May the 2nd. Theatre Fakatane have School of Rock, the musical, directed by Sue Harris, April 27th to May the 14th. 
Auckland Theatre Company, I think we let you know last week that they've made the difficult decision to cancel, or they cancelled all their remaining performances of Grand Horizons. They cancelled Lysander's Auntie and Witty's Wahine has been postponed to 2023, all due to gathering limitations and the increasing spread of Omicron in Auckland. Upcoming auditions and opportunities, Bold Theatre have their Kate Shepherd in position. They're now looking to fill all the other roles for That Bloody Woman. Auditions are held this weekend. Uh, they've opened up Saturday as well as Sunday, and all the information you need to follow there is on the Bold Theatre website or their Facebook page. Most excellent. The Gaslight Theatre in Cambridge have just announced auditions for The Things I Know To Be True by Angel Bovell and that's directed by Chrissy Hodkinson. April 2nd, our auditions. You can get all the information you need on their Facebook page. Whew, good happening. And, oh, there is a lot happening. Uh, I think I'm going to audition for that play because it looks like it's going to be a bit fun. Uh, as always, we'll be announcing all the productions we know of as we hear of them. If there is a show or audition opportunity you want us to spread the word about, email us on backstagepodcastnz at gmail.com or let us know when you see us around next. And because it's that time of the day again, and so quickly, we have to now say thank you to Free FM for hosting us, and thanks to Creative Waikato for sponsoring us. Backstage is available always on accessmedia.nz, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And Matt will be sharing all of our new content about our musical of the week and the rest of the stuff we're doing in our Instagram story and also on Facebook. Sure, well, come back next week for another hot musical, another deep dive into the world of theatre. Kakite and stay classy, theatre nerd. And stay safe. We're going out today with Promise Me Violet from our musical of the week, Violet. See you. You got my number, so call me when it's convenient for you. Some night you're drunk and you're lonely, got nothing better to do. I'll be sitting home waiting to hear from you. I got your number, I'll call you. I got your number, I'll call you. Expect to hear from you soon. Expect to hear from you. You never know with the army. I'll be your neighbor by June. Good. Right minute time. I'll wait to hear from you. You weren't so bad for a soldier. You weren't the best or the worst. But when you started to cry, boy, I tell you that was a first. Violet, you doing all right no, there? I'm fine. Worried or something? I'm fine. It's all the candy and the sodas. What'd you expect? I mean, isn't this your stop? Shouldn't you be getting ready to go? You I got, got your my number, so. What? I got, got my number, so. What? You got my number, so call me. Expect to hear from me soon. Some night you're drunk and you're lonely. Under the spell of the moon. I'll be sitting home, knitting something fit, and just waiting to hear from you. Come on, money. Promise me, Violet. Promise you'll do this once your healing's through. Money. Come to this station Anytime Sunday I'll be here for you I'll be waiting by the roadside Anytime I'll make do I've been waiting for a lifetime to get your sweet kiss So Violet promise Cause I'll be waiting for you Promise me Violet Why won't you face me All I want is you 
not some beauty that don't concern me. I'll be here for you. I'll be waiting by the roadside. Make my lonesome dream. Am I just caught up in a dream? I've been waiting for a lifetime. You're so sweet. For someone simply. I've been waiting. To look and see me. I'll be waiting. The way that I Promise me violence. You got yourself a good joke Why now. Won't you you want to set up the punchline. Like I That's all I am, I know. I got your number, my darling. You look too good to be true. Slow down, you know I'm the best thing has ever happened to you. I'm coming here Sunday. I'll see you then, all right? And you get off that bus. Well, leave the girl in peace. What the hell's wrong with you? Well, you expect to get to Tulsa and back in two days? Episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.